Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm Josh Bice, and this week I will be joined by two friends, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker of the Just Thinking Podcast. We had the privilege to sit down while we were on the campus of the Master's Seminary and Grace Community Church there for the 2020 Shepherds Conference, and we had the opportunity to sit down and talk about something that's of great importance as we consider and as we evaluate and think through the issues of social justice. So we talked about the issue of intersectionality, which is a topic of great concern. What actually is intersectionality and how is it affecting the way that we do ministry today? You might remember that it was just last year that the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention adopted Resolution 9, which was on critical race theory and intersectionality as uh, tools or analytical tools that could be employed to actually help gospel churches do ministry. So what does intersectionality mean? And that's exactly what we talk about in this very episode. So I do hope it'll be a blessing to you and a help to you as you consider these complicated issues and as we continue to journey onward in this Vanity Fair age. May God bless. Welcome to the G3 Podcast, a weekly podcast focused on the Christian life where we examine doctrinal and cultural issues that impact God's church. My name is Josh Bice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Voilo. All right, well, welcome to the G3 Podcast. It's a privilege to have a wonderful conversation today with two friends of mine, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker of the Just Thinking Podcast. We are here today, actually on the campus of the Master Seminary, as we're here for the 2020 Shepherds Conference. And so welcome to the to the G3 Podcast, brothers. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having us, Thanks man. Thanks for having us, man. We're, Glad we're, to be here. We're giddy yeah. about <laughs> being able to spend this time with you, brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a joy. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, always. And so thank you uh, for, again, for all of your work, for your ministry, for what you stand for. Today we want to have a conversation about a subject that you guys are well-versed in, but yet a subject that's quite a bit controversial as we think about this age of confusion that we live in as we have so much uh, rhetoric and talk about social justice. There's a whole lot of confusion on these issues, but as, as we think about the term intersectionality, mm-hmm. that, uh, again, that's a term that we hear coming to us from the world of, of the social justice movement. It's a term that was actually coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a political activist, a radical feminist in 1989 as she was seeking to uh, come to the aid of those who are oppressed, those who are victims. So bringing this victimology culture to the surface. And so her idea was that if you can uh, look at our culture in general, she would say if you're a woman that lives in America, that you're going to be oppressed simply because of the fact that you're a woman. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman that happens to be black in America, you're going to be oppressed on two various points or intersections, she would say, of oppression. 
But if you're a woman who happens to be a lesbian and you're black, now there's three points of intersection, which at that intersection, those, the, those various points, that's going to be the greatest opportunity for injustice for that individual. So as we hear that sort of talk, again, she's trying to come to the aid of those who are oppressed, maybe uh, bring about uh, some sort of an equal standing of privilege. And so as we think about that, um, we, we, we're now starting to see that same sort of language, which we could expect to hear that in the world of politics or just general culture, right? Mm-hmm. But now we're starting to hear that from church leaders within evangelical circles. Mm-hmm. So I don't know uh, if you guys have checked the website, but there's actually a website you can check your intersectionality score mm-hmm. to find out where you rank on that. So, uh, Daryl, have you have you checked your score lately? Yeah, I've actually checked my score. It was a couple months ago. I think I actually did participate in that intersectionality survey, and I think my score ended up being around a 25 Wow. Or something like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty oppressed, actually, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize it until I took that survey. Now, now so. you know. Now, now I know, now you know, so yeah, so what am I doing here then? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. so Virgil, where do you rank? I don't, mine couldn't have been very high. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I kind of, you know, I, I scored it, kind of ranked it, and... Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm doing too well. I think I need. I think I need to figure out some more intersectional spaces and places where yeah. I can identify some some victimization yeah, on yeah. my part. So yeah, well, if you'll figure it out, then uh, just just make it known so that I can apologize to you before right, the day's right, over right. For, for how I had so much privilege. <laughs> right, over. right. I, I used to have my intersectionality score as part of my Twitter bio. Oh, good. But I I took it down for some reason because I didn't think it. I thought it was one of those things that just kind of blow over as a good sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, exercise. But, yeah, it's it's still being leveraged out there in in different spaces. I initially thought it was a joke. I did, The first time that someone sent it to me, I thought it was a joke. But but it's a real thing, and people are using it. Uh, And as we think about this whole social justice movement and specifically intersectionality, When we think about how we assess the culture, we're seeing things like this used as quote-unquote analytical tools within denominational uh, circles like the Southern Baptist Convention Mm -hmm. this past year passed a resolution called Resolution 9, Mm -hmm. Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality as analytical tools. I want to talk today about not just intersectionality, I want to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the heart of this entire debate is an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely. So, in other words, do we need these analytical tools, which, by the way, this resolution that was passed within the Southern Baptist Convention, the language states that critical race theory and intersectionality in and of themselves Mm -hmm. are inadequate to assess the, the brokenness of our culture, right? Right. What they would say is that the uh, is that the scriptures are sufficient to address the culture? Right. So my question to you men would be, why do we need those analytical tools today to address the the culture, to reach the culture, to uh, to approach the culture through a gospel lens? As far as we as Christians and the mission of the church, why are those tools even necessary, or are they necessary? I, I'd argue one that they're that they're not necessary. I, I think that's that's the position I hold. I want to go back to something that you said because I think it tees up why folks believe there's a need for the tools in the first place. You mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw. You mentioned 
uh, intersectionality, her coining the term in 89. You, you also mentioned the fact that she uh, is kind of steeped in critical race theory. Um, the goal of which is to bring equality. You had mentioned that her, 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 her desire was to see things be equal. Her desire is not, not that all are created equal. Her desire is to see equality. And when, when you look at uh, equality being the issue that she wants to bring to bear, the thought process is things are not equal because the basis is not founded in, in Scripture. The basis is not founded in, in, in the anthrop anthropology or biblical anthropology. It's founded in the identity of the individual. And as a result, when we see inadequacies or inequities, those have got to be created by an external tool. So now the Bible is no longer sufficient. I've got to come up with something in addition to Scripture in order to drive the equality that's necessary in the space. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, Resolution 9, and when you think about what the resolution says, it's inherently contradictory because you can't say on the one hand that you realize that Scripture is sufficient but then on the other hand, you acknowledge that uh, critical race theory and intersectionality as an analytical, analytical tool is in and of itself insufficient mm -hmm. to address what you're saying. Scripture is sufficient to address. Right. So it's th th that logic just doesn't make sense. You know, it's, it's just non sequitur. It just does not fit. And my brother Virgil here is reading my mind. He made an absolutely brilliant point. What, it, what interse intersectionality attempts to do under the guise that the gospel objective is to create a world of equality mm -hmm. it, it, it is based on that assumption so intersectionality uh, succeeds by us buying into the assumption that the goal of humanity is to create a world where equality exists mm -hmm. where scripture strictly teaches that we are all equal uh, a great example of that is in matthew 20 we have the parable of the laborers on, where the at, at the end of that parable, the laborers get upset because uh, the landowner dares to pay the laborers who work the longest. Yes. The same amount as the laborers who work the least. Absolutely. So in, in, an, in an intersectionality sort of uh, context, they got they the, the, the labor who, who, who got who worked the least, but got paid the same uh, worked the most, but got paid the same amount. Mm -hmm. That's an example of, in, in a parable sort of sense, of how intersectionality works. Yeah. The laborer wanted equality, yeah. mm -hmm. but what the labor, what the landowner reminded him of was, was no, I'm treating you equal mm -hmm. because I'm still paying you absolutely. what you, the, the, the ways that you agreed to. Absolutely, absolutely, so, absolutely. Now, I, I, the other thing I would add to to what we're talking about here is is what critical race theory tries to do what intersectional intersectionality um, tries to do is is it's it's really reframed not only our biblical anthropology but it's reframed our hermodiology mm -hmm. it's reframed and recategorized our soteriology yes. it, it, it's it said while we're while on the one hand there, there are those who are appealing to uh, uh, the the the, uh, the things that from um, the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the, uh, the resolution. Right. While there are those who are saying, hey, that, that the, the Bible is sufficient in those ways, mm -hmm. they're really ignoring all of those aspects mm -hmm. that, that the critical race theory and intersectionality is trying to bring to bear. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's really at issue. And, and, and let me just say this, let me add something else to what Virgil just said, especially with respect to how intersectionality is basically proffering a totally new soteriology. Absolutely. So the question has to be asked for the Christian Inter, uh, intersectionalists, uh, intersectionalists is right. what I'm trying to say. For the Christian intersectionalists, mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself, 
why is it through the lens of scripture that you're tr- trying to apply this worldview? Why, mm-hmm. why, why is it that That's the so why, why is it that it is the gospel through which you are trying to apply this worldview? Why isn't it applied to Islam, for instance, yeah. and the Quran? Yeah. Uh, so I ask that question because if you're applying intersectionality through a gospel lens, and at the same time you're trying to talk out of both sides of your mouth, mm-hmm. and on the one hand say that the gospel is sufficient. But on the other hand, says that, you know, uh, as an analytical tool, intersectionality can can come alongside the gospel and augment it. If you don't see, uh, as as we just heard Nathan Busnitz uh, talk about, if you don't see Christ as deity, if you don't see scripture as being authoritative from step one, why do you need the gospel to have to come alongside intersectionality to begin with if it's not inherently authoritative? And if it's not innately the word of God to begin with. Unfortunately, and and I I say this in in the most loving way. Unfortunately, we in Southern Baptist circles have have adopted such a pragmatic approach. We've minimized sufficiency of scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where the battle is. The the, the battle is at the corner of, of, we've already fought the battle of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. We we, we believe that we've won that. Mm -hmm. But this insidious thing, regarding sufficiency is really at attack mm-hmm. and uh, and at the end of the day we, we can't uh, to, to the point that Daryl just made we can't on the one hand say it is sufficient and on the other say we need analytical tools yeah. it's just not 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 connected yes yeah, so to Daryl's point just a moment ago it's as if these these tactics and this agenda is is saying that the gospel needs help mm-hmm. absolutely the gospel mm-hmm. exactly needs help that's exactly right of politics absolutely. or sociology yeah a crutch of sociology mm-hmm. to limp along mm-hmm. to, to try to reach the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I find it interesting when Timothy, this young pastor, was preaching in a city of sin that was known as the Vanity Fair of the ancient mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. Ephesus. Mm-hmm. It was fu- it was a, a city that was full of trade and, and politics, and it was full of athletics, but it was also a city that was full of worship. Mm-hmm. There was a massive temple there that was dedicated to this false goddess, this multi-breasted goddess. Mm -hmm. And they not only sold her idols in the marketplace, but they worshipped her in the temple Mm -hmm. and even through temple prostitution. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a young man who's pastoring in a city like that, and you find Paul at the very end of his battle-scarred life, Mm -hmm. he writes a letter to this young pastor, and he doesn't say... You need some analytical tools. Right, right. He right. says, preach the word. Right. right. So this right. is an attack. It's a frontal assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely. You know, uh, and Virgil, as you jump in here real quick, I think at fu- fundamentally uh, the reason intersectionality is making uh, inroads and, and, and gaining traction in some denominations, uh, not the least of which is the SBC, is because as Christians and as the church, we've forgotten really what Christ came to do. Um, I say that in light of uh, what Paul writes to Timothy, speaking of Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, you contrast that, again, to your point about how intersectionality proffers a totally different soteriology than what the gospel preaches. In 2 Peter 3.13, Peter says that we, that is believers, are to be looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But intersectionality is redefining soteriology in that soteriology or salvation is 
uh, number one, can be brought on by sinful human beings that we can save ourselves and that that salvation or, uh, to put it another way, the salvation that Christ offers us in order for that salvation to be fully orbed, fully realized, it must manifest itself in equality across the board. Right, right. And and from from that from that standpoint, what become what becomes God is government. Right, right. The, right. So, the solution at the end of the day becomes government. In in the in the case of uh, of of denominations, it becomes the church government or church polity or what, whatever whatever structure is in place. One that needs to be torn down, and those who have the right kind of thought process need to be put in place so they can play the role of God, because God's word is insufficient. I want to quote from First uh, Thessalonians two. Um, verse 13, because at the end of the day, the person who's holding to I the idea that intersectionality needs to be an analytical tool is not trusting the word to do its work. It's not trusting the word to do its work. And so in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but that it was the word, that what the word really is, and that is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's key. We've got to honestly believe that the word is sufficient to do the work in the heart of the believer in an effort to change their hearts, their minds, and their lives to reflect Christ. Couldn't have said it better myself. You know, you think about uh, intersectionality, and I'm just thinking about the term itself. When you sort of break the term down phonetically, right? Okay, so you've got intersectionality. So that term, just by definition, uh, uh, categorizes us, or can so, so it sort of divides us into categories, into sections. Mm -hmm. And not only does it divide us, but the categories that it divides us into are subjective categories. Absolutely. They're subjective categories. So who determines, who, who, who decides, who has the authority to determine what those categories are in an objective sort of sense? But the answer is no, no one, one does. Um, so, so whoever at the whim of, of their own worldview can come up with any kind of intersectional category that they may want to just roll off the top of their head. An example of that is what I refer to as an intersectionality spectrum that was developed by an organization called the Association of Women in Science. They have a website, awis.org, awis.org. And I just recently came across this, what I'm calling an intersectionality spectrum, just before we did this interview uh, with Josh. So there's, uh, let's call it on this spectrum, uh, horizontally, there's what they call a dominion line. So, okay, so that's the horizontal line. But the vertical line there, at the top of the vertical line is privilege, and at the bottom of the vertical line is oppression. So here are some examples of these subjective intersectionality categories. So for one, uh, on the privilege line, okay, on the privilege scale, if you're credentialed, okay, if you have a degree, or if you have a certification in anything, you are privileged. And on, along this intersectionality spectrum, that's called educationalism. Okay, so you're guilty of, of educationalism. If you're young, okay, you're privileged. So you're guilty of ageism. If you consider yourself attractive, you're privileged. They call that the politics of appearance. I'm safe there then, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm safe on that one. Okay, if you are of European heritage, you're privileged. They call that Eurocentrism. If you're male, that's sexism or androcentrism. Now, 
those are just some examples. I don't even cover all of the privileged categories there. On the oppression end of the intersectionality scale, you're oppressed if you're a Jew, if you're dark-skinned, if you speak English as a second language, if you're old. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. They don't define what old is. They just say if you're old, uh -oh. if you're a person of color, if you're female, if you're non-literate. Okay, so this is this is an example I'm talking. Just subjective categories that just come out of nowhere. They're basically they're basically. Uh, again, we, we talked about it at the top. This is an unbiblical anthropology. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there's, there's no reason or rationale for this kind of thought process. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, And he made from one man on. every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, mm. having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So you asked a moment ago, who determines this? Well, mm -hmm. the answer is God does. Mm -hmm. God mm -hmm. determines if I'm mm -hmm. going to be born in America. Mm -hmm. God determines the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. God determines these things. And another question just to ask honestly is, is it wrong to have a certain amount of privilege? That, that, you know, the, 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 I think the question is great in and of itself um, because it, it, it really exposes the faulty presupposition. It, it really does. It exposes it on its face. The reality is everyone has a privilege of some kind. Uh, the issue is not that we have it. It's how we use it mm -hmm. and what we do with it. Again, if, when, you, when you go back and, and look at uh, men like, uh, like James Cone, uh, who thought that you needed to, to be, uh, for white people to be, have black skin mm -hmm. in order to enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of, his, some of his quotes, and this is, the, this is the very foundation laying for critical race theory. This is the foundation laying for intersectionality and the ideas that are, that are, that are creeping into our churches called alongside scripture in an effort to examine our lives. It's very, very dangerous stuff. You know, I think about when we talk about that term privilege, that's another subjective term that has no <laughs> definition whatsoever. Uh, I'm reminded of a phrase that Dr. Stephen Lawson likes to use. Uh, he talks about people who have their feet firmly planted in midair. Right. You know, so th this is an example of that. Intersectionality is built upon terms that cannot be objectively defined. So mm -hmm. when you talk about privilege, a text that comes to mind immediately with respect to how biblically we ought to view privilege is Matthew chapter 5 verses 45 <clears throat> says that so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous mm -hmm. so we're all privileged by mm -hmm. virtue of God having blessed us all and I think back to the if, if you want to talk about intersectional categories mm -hmm. uh, God names only two uh, in Genesis 127, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created him male and female. Yes. Okay. Now, when you go to Genesis chapter 5, Genesis 5 reiterates that. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Verse 2, he created the male and female and he blessed them. Mm. He blessed them. Right. So we're all blessed. Right. Okay. We're blessed by virtue of breathing, number one. So we're, <laughs> we're privileged by virtue of having breath in our lungs. Right. But God, in the two categories God created, male and female, he blessed them all. James chapter 2, uh, verse 1 says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Mm. 
intersectionality is an attempt at partiality. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely anti-biblical for anyone who carries the name of the Lord to be bringing that into our churches should be admonished by what Scripture says specifically about it. Yeah, when you look at the New Testament, you see references the Apostle Paul makes to the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. and they were a blessed people. For God gave to them the, the oracles, the covenants. Mm -hmm. I mean, the law of God was mm -hmm. given to the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. That through Israel, God would bless the whole oh, wide mm -hmm. world yeah. mm -hmm. because he would bring his mm -hmm. son through Israel, right? So what you have is if you just look at the, at the framework of uh, God's plan of salvation, redemptive history, you have... God blessing this one nation. Deuteronomy tells us he, he chose to bless this one nation. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. So right there you can see God gave Israel great privilege. Absolutely. And now you come to the New Testament and you see that God has given great privilege to who? His elect. Absolutely. The church of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So when we think of using these quote-unquote analytical tools to undo the evils of racism, systemic injustice, all the things that we keep hearing people talk about within evangelicalism. I say what you guys have said just a moment ago, not only is it an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture, but it's not bringing about unity, it's bringing about division. Right, right. Absolutely. right. Absolutely. It's bringing about division by, by, by basically it's inverting the gospel, all right? So we are all one body in Christ, okay? The scripture is clear on that. And how do we become one? Well, we become by, by virtue of the, the power of the gospel that Vir Virgil quoted from 1 Thessalonians earlier, that the, the word of God works in the hearts of those who believe. Mm -hmm. The word of God performs heart surgery, okay? It regenerates their heart, changes the way that you see the world. Mm -hmm. And as it changes the way that, that you see the world, it changes the way that you see everyone within the world so that you see them through the lens of what the objective truth of God's word teaches, okay? Not through some subjective categories that have no definition, no landing point whatsoever, and that change with every whim of the wind. I mean, you just put your finger up in the air and, and listen, it changes from one minute to the next, Absolutely. not just one day to the next. Absolutely. So you never know when you're being uh, 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 in concert or aligning with that standard because the standard always changes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think really quickly, just talking about this thing on privilege again, if you're listening to this, right, and you're a professing Christian, you profess to be a Christian, hear me on John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This, these are two of the most privileged verses in Scripture that you're going to find. John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as, re as received him, to them he gave the right... To become children of God. Mm -hmm. Now that you were given the right by God, that's pretty privileged that's to me. Incredibly privileged. That, that, that suggests that you you were not a child of God prior right. to God giving you the, the right. right to become a child of God. Mm -hmm. But as many as re received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of of God. So if you profess to be a believer in Christ, you've been born again. Your heart has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit by virtue of hearing the gospel. You are among the most privileged individuals on this planet. Josh, I want to add, add this to the conversation as well as, as I kind of go back to what you talked about earlier with regard to the Southern Baptist Convention, with regard to denominations and, and what we believe. Paul, Paul I mean, in, in, in the book of Romans says that he's unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God 
unto salvation. The reality is we don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Amen. We really, I was yep. thinking about that as he, as he read that, that, that section of scripture. We don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really believe that the gospel is okay. But if we mm-hmm. add our cool, hip, kind of smoking mirrors, uh, our, our tap dance, our, you know, our, 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 our great bands, whatever it is, our style of music, our fog machine. Mm-hmm. If we add those things to the gospel, perhaps someone would like to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they come and stay, we've got to figure out what to do in order to keep them. Um, and, and, and what we're doing with ideas that, that are from the culture that we acknowledge within the SBC are antithetical, mm-hmm. antithetical to the Bible. These are antithetical theories and ideas to the scripture. We're willing to bring them in because we've embraced pragmatically what the culture said we must do in order to tip the hat back on on issues of racism in the past. Yeah. Bro, I love what you said Rose, just now when you said they're, 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 that we think the gospel's okay. I love that, man. And what that made me think about, you know, really, I think it really, if you could line up every professing Christian hearing me right now, you really find out that they're really not Christians. What they are is moralists. Mm. They're moralists. So they think the gospel is okay in terms of uh, being good, behaving well, being... I don't have any organ music. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to tell me to back up and say it again. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's been listening to Somebody's our podcast. Somebody's been listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, what they really are are moralists. You nailed it, bro. I love that. They think the gospel's okay because they view the gospel as a means to live a good life, to behave, you know, modify by behavior. If I do more good than bad, that's really what the gospel's all about. Right. They have no paradigm whatsoever. And you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, a harmoniology, the doctrine mm-hmm. of sin. They have no idea, no concept whatsoever that the gospel is designed to work in the hearts of of those who believe his word, God, of God's elect, mm-hmm. to deal with sin Absolutely. in our lives. Absolutely. Sin is why we do bad things, and the, that's what the gospel. But they have no concept of that. Well, when you when you when you use a tool that has totally misrepresented what sin is, you never get to the heart. Hello, of the issue thank you. To begin with, and that's the purpose of the tool. And the heart of the issue is the heart. Absolutely, that's what intersectionality does not deal with. It does not deal with the root cause. It does not deal with the sin that is innate within each one of us from the moment we are conceived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does not deal with that. Absolutely. So, in terms of missions, in terms of reaching a culture, obviously, we don't need. Uh, critical race theory mm-hmm. intersectionality. It's not helpful, okay. Josh. We just simply don't need it. So, in other words, Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What we should say is, I am ashamed of Resolution 9. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I am ashamed of intersectionality. Yes. Okay, so now let's, let, let's talk for a moment just quickly about the issue of biblical interpretation. Mm. So, in other words, how we read the Bible matters, how we interpret the text matters. So if we're going to read a text of Scripture and we're going to try to explain that passage of Scripture by way of preaching or teaching or just just simple Bible study 101, what are some simple things that we need to know about a text of Scripture? So just rattle it off. What would you need to know? We definitely need to know the context, okay. right? We need to make observations of the text. We need to understand the meaning in its proper context prior to making any kind of application. I mean, that's just basic kind of hermeneutics 101. Mm-hmm. The, the problem, Josh, and I don't know if you're wanting to go here, if you want to stay, stay in this space. The problem is what we're dealing with is, 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 uh, is standpoint epistemology. That's it. Yep. We're dealing with an, with an experiential epistemology that is placed on top of the lens of the scripture in order to interpret. James Cone, James Cone said this, he said uh, in his book, Christianity and Black Power, he said, my main concern 
as he approached the text of scripture, was to demonstrate the politics of black power was the gospel of Jesus Christ to 20th, 20th century America. Mm -hmm. For black power was concerned with the liberation of the black poor from oppression as, and Jesus as shown, as, that Jesus had shown such concern for the liberation of the poor during his earthly ministry. Mm -hmm. What Cone is doing in that context is he's saying, prior to looking at context, making observations, looking at meaning, understanding and providing proper application to my life, what I need to do first is I need to understand the black context in 20th century America. Mm -hmm. And I need to view the works of Christ mm -hmm. through that lens. Right. That's basic eisegesis. Yeah, absolutely. So in other words, when back to what we said earlier, if you're going to read the passage of Scripture, you need to know who wrote the passage, the original audience. Absolutely. That sort of That's thing. all context. So, so building blocks uh, will help us understand, uh, again, how to interpret that text of Scripture. But when, when you see someone like Beth Moore tweeting out, her, you know, annual reading plan for mm -hmm. the year, talking about she's going to read people of color, women, minorities, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. eventually work to the white male. Mm -hmm. Again, does it really matter what color skin someone has as far as their means of interpreting the text of Scripture? So, in other words, to be quite honest with you, I have thrown a lot of white commentators in the garbage mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. their theology was horrible. Mm -hmm. But you did that not you based upon their right. skin color. Right, not based on their ethnicity, but because, because, their so because their theology yeah. was horrible. Yeah, so I'm saying it just because of the fact that they, they actually had white skin, but the fact is it was based on their abilities, right. their giftedness. Right. So when we think of studying the Bible, I'm not looking for the color of someone's skin. I'm looking at are they able to... Right adequately address the text of scripture and then explain it properly to right. get to the single meaning of the author. Absolutely. You know, the question you posed, Josh, reminded me of an, a blog article that I wrote uh, several months ago. Um, and I titled that article, Six Reasons the Church in America is Becoming Increasingly Impotent. Um, I was inspired to write that article based on the question you just posed about, you know, how, what, are the, what are some basic rules around Bible study? And what I found in my interactions with many Christians on social media, especially, and I say this with all due respect, not condescendingly or harshly at all, but I come to, I've come to find that a lot of Christians don't do, they don't want to do the hard work of studying God's word. Um, in that blog article, blog article that I just alluded to, I listed six reasons why the church in America is becoming so impotent. And at the top of that list of six reasons was hermeneutical immaturism. Mm -hmm. Hermeneutical immaturism, immaturism. That is, there's an immaturity within the body of Christ with respect to not just knowing what the Word of God says, but what it means by what it says. Mm -hmm. And that takes work. Yeah. Uh, and I point that out uh, in the article, but many Christians don't want to do the hard work of getting alone with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and legitimate theological tools to help them unpack the layers of meaning within a particular text. This is why, for example, so many people take out of context verses like Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, yeah. right? Yeah. They confuse, they conflate judgment with condemnation, mm -hmm. never realizing that in John 7, 24, mm -hmm. Christ himself permits Christians to, exactly right. So with context. Truth. So there's a hermeneutical immaturism, and, and I would sort of slash, uh, put a slash mark there and say biblical illiteracy that is crippling the church right now yeah. in terms of studying the Word of God. The, the, the pragmatism that has permeated our, our church culture has, 
has lent itself to such topical messages, mm-hmm. such lightweight uh, ministry that's happening on Sunday morning mm-hmm. that people have no real resource to understand what the what the tools are mm-hmm. that they're supposed to use in an effort to understand Scripture pro- mm-hmm. properly. Yeah, so if we look at the evangelical landscape, we see trends. We see certain types of church growth trends, right? So you can go back and you can look at different music styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned fo- fog machines. We can talk about lights. We can talk about types of music. You can talk about puppets and drama and all sorts of things. But in our culture, right now, present day, we have replaced theology with victimology. Mm -hmm. So rather Mm -hmm. than fog machines, we're virtue signaling Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. into the church doors. Mm -hmm. And we're basically thinking that if we can can get them into the church because they see that we're repenting of systemic injustice and various other things, then we're going to win them to Jesus that way. Broken church. Yes, that's a broken missiology right right there, totally. It it, it absolutely is. The the thing about it is it's after the fact. Mm -hmm. We we always do, maybe back in the day, I I mean, I'm going to date myself by saying this. Uh, Back in the day, you had had groups like Petra, and they were trying to do kind of the Christian rock thing. We we always kind of come at the the B side of something, right? The culture has done this whole, they've, they've chased this rabbit of intersectionality. They do it better than anybody. Mm-hmm. We're the Johnny-come-latelys of this thing, trying to put it on, on our backs and then ramrod it through as if we're, as if we're the first to do it. Mm-hmm. And we're not. I, I, just, I, th- I think we've got to go back. We've got to stop adopting these ideas of the culture. Mm-hmm. we really got to get back to the text of Scripture yeah. because at the end of the day, that's what's sufficient. Ver- Verge is absolutely right. We, ha- we have to stop adopting these ideas up from the culture. And here's, here's the problem here. The reason we do that is because we don't know what, we don't know what the church is. By definition, we don't know what the church is. We think that getting a warm body through the door uh, that they're in in the church by virtue of being inside the local church building. Right. But Scripture defines the church as being comprised of believers in that. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. If you're not a believer in Christ, you're not a part of the church. Yeah, I don't care even if you're inside a church building. If you're an unbeliever, <laughs> you are not a part of the church. You know, here's my. Here, I have a one verse church growth strategy. <laughs> Everybody, listen to this. A one verse church growth strategy. Acts nine thirty one. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Mm-hmm. It being the church. Yeah. Okay. Um, John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Come on, man. That is a one, mer- one verse missiology for the church right there, is to... Preach the gospel so that people come to believe in Jesus Christ. When you succeed there, then you've succeeded in carrying out your mission as a church. The church is not about the local structure and getting people of various uh, shades of melanin or various orientations or various shifting genders that that shift every 30 seconds seated on your pews. Mm. Okay, your mission as a church is to to get believers in Jesus Christ. And unless they're believers, they're not part of the church. We have a typically a younger audience who listens to this podcast that attends the G3 conference. Interestingly enough, I was walking here on campus uh, just yesterday and and a young man approached me. He wanted to talk to me about social justice stuff. He lives in Los Angeles here. 
He's on the younger millennial spectrum side. And he said, can you talk to me about social justice? So we sat down, we had coffee. I, wow. I, I spoke to him for about a half an hour. He said this, he said, I think I understand what you're saying. I think I get it. But he said, my dad, on, on the other hand, he says, my dad says, you guys are just a bunch of primarily older, grumpy, white men uh -huh. who are complaining about things and unwilling to address the evils of the culture. Uh -huh. And he said, so what would you say to that? So I want to ask you, and I want to give you guys the last word, because there's a lot of people that say the statement on social justice and the gospel was about a bunch of grumpy white guys, primarily speaking. Daryl, you weren't able to be at the mm -hmm. meeting initially. Yeah. Um, but they say that we're not interested in, in addressing real systemic injustice, brokenness, poverty, and the, the hardships of this culture. So what would you guys say about that? Yeah, I would just have to say, again, it goes back to something I said earlier. Uh, you have to answer the question, why is the gospel the way to address those questions, period, to begin with? Why is the gospel the way to address those questions? And you have to understand this. For every problem, there's a cause. There's the cause and the effect. But most social justicians want to focus only on the effect, not the cause. Um, and again, the gospel deals with the root cause of all injustice, all poverty, all, uh, all, all, all uh, discrimination, however you want to define that. But each one of those issues comes out of the heart. Uh, of, of, of sense. So every idea, so for instance, with uh, respect to um, uh, the civil rights era, for, 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 for instance, uh, I, don't, I don't remember that time period, but I've studied it quite thoroughly. Uh, one of the images uh, that I came across years ago that sticks in my mind were uh, uh, lines of black men who would protest outside of a restaurant uh, somewhere in the South, but they would wear these placards uh, over them that said, I am a man. I found, I found it interesting that those placards did not say, I am a black man. Mm -hmm. They did not say, I am a poor man. They did not say, I am a needy man. I'm a homeless man. They said, no, I am a man. So it, uh, fundamentally, the civil rights era was about the Imago Dei. Mm -hmm. It was about the Imago Dei. Right. And getting the culture to recognize that despite my skin color, the same God who created you created me. Mm -hmm. Equal, not equality. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. equal, not equality. I am a man, equal. Mm -hmm. They did not say I am a black man, equality. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction to be made there. So, so to that young man or to anyone else who has that same question, they have to come back to the fundamental issue that all injustice is a root of sin. Right. And only as hearts repent and believe the gospel as Jesus preached in the very first sermon he gave, the first word out of his mouth was repent yeah. and believe in the gospel. Yeah. Only as people believe the gospel through the power of Christ will the culture ever change. Josh, we, need to, we definitely need to start in with the gospel. Yeah. And so I would only add two things. One, the response is a non sequitur, number one. And two, it's a genetic fallacy. Mm -hmm. The issue has nothing to do with who, who made the statement. The issue is, is the statement true? Grumpy white men is irrelevant. Right. That's a, that's a, that's an irrelevant argument is what was said in the statement factual and true on the basis of an examination of Scripture. Mm -hmm. 
that's the issue top to bottom and it goes and it goes back to to what daryl just said at the end of the day it's a lack of trust in the gospel's sufficiency to change the hearts of men and can i add one more fallacy sure. to that yeah, yeah. one more fallacy that's inherent to that question is that the um the uh the um the offenses or the struggles that black people face in this this country are always the by byproduct of white people mm. now let me just say this uh, in my life, I've been held at, held up at gunpoint twice. Never by a white person. I've been held up at gunpoint twice by people who look like me. Mm -hmm. I've been called coon, Uncle Tom, house nigger. Uh, you can edit that if you want, but I'm just keeping it real. I've never been called those epitaphs by anyone white. Mm -hmm. I've been called, called those names numerous times by people who look like me. Mm -hmm. Okay? In the hoods where I grew up, Nobody white ever broke into my house and stole my car or burst my headlights on my car. No one white ever did that. So let me add another, I'm going to add another fallacy to what you just said. And the fallacy is that the problems that black people face in the black community are always existential. They're always, ex and, and that, that existential uh, oppression is always brought on by people who don't look like them. When the exact opposite is true. Now you guys can hate on me if you want, but that's the absolute fact. Yeah. I've lived it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's back to you, Josh. That's the reality. Yeah. 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 Well, guys, it's been really a, a privilege to have you uh, have this conversation with me mm -hmm. to talk over this issue of intersectionality, which is such a confusing issue in and of itself. And we, we are living in an age of confusion. But I wanted to conclude with just a reading of 2 Timothy chapter 4, just by way of bringing us back to square one once again. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he charges Timothy to preach the word. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. May I say, parenthetically, even passions of social justice, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mind you. Mm -hmm. And will wander off into myths. As for you, always, notice this, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Mm -hmm. I would just say at this juncture, what we need is we don't need pastors, preachers, conference speakers standing at pulpits doing TED Talks yeah. about Amen. intersectionality. Amen. We yep. need bold men standing with an open Bible without blushing, preaching the Word. Amen, Josh. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, God bless you, men. Thank God bless you, you too, Josh. Thanks Thank for you. having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for taking time to join us for this G3 podcast. We do hope that you will take time to check out the resources that are available to you on the G3 app, as well as our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. We also want to take time to invite you to the G3 cruise, the G3 at sea that'll be taking place this upcoming January. So you can find out more information at g3cruise.com. And as always, we hope that you will be a healthy, contributing member of your local church for the glory of God.